how you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. You can find us on www.plasticpodcasts.com. Trade unionist, campaigner, actor and writer, Paddy O'Keefe made his way to England in 1964, and he's been here ever since. An Irishman abroad, he's lived in Norfolk, London and Sussex, been a leading member of the Stop the War campaign and an advocate of various civil rights causes, while his one-man show, Bernard Shaw Invites You, has toured to such far-flung outcrops as Liverpool and New Delhi. He is also the possessor of a fine, fine beard. I ask him about his pride in being Irish and his approach to George Bernard Shaw. My purpose is not really to impersonate him, although some American uh, people in the Shaw Society say I'm an excellent impersonator of Shaw, and I hate saying that. I think, look, I'm an actor. I'm playing Shaw. I'm not impersonating him. On stage, I am being him. <laughs> What's the difference then, do you think? Because obviously Bernard Shaw being an actual real-life individual that we've got... We, we, we've got yeah. um, documentary evidence of the way he speaks and obviously this yes, is writing yes. and so forth and so so you have a yes. sense of what his his thoughts and um his thoughts and way of communicating are and so therefore it's not something that you create yourself is it there is an interpretation involved here that's true that's true i mean a lot of it is already there in the sense that i think i do look a bit like him he had more hair on the top of his head than i do without question <laughs> and the accent i've got the accent he, he spoke with a uh, a sort of what they call a posh Dublin accent, Rathgar or Rathmines accent all his life. Um, and um, that's there. So I don't, I don't, in a sense, do much in the way of impersonating. I, I, you know, because that's creating an impression. I mean, what I do is uh, having researched him and having begun thinking that I knew all about him. Because people who were brought up in Dublin, where he was brought up, you assume that you know all about people like Oscar Wilde and Bernard Shaw and um, uh, Samuel Beckett and these people, because their spirits are around you all the time. And it wasn't until I started delving into it that I realised how little I knew. You cited three individuals there, um, Wilde, Shaw and Beckett yep. there, and all three are essentially Irishmen abroad. Uh, does that enter into your interpretation? And does that chime in with you and your own experiences? Um, yes. Yes to both of those, I would say. Um, yeah, it does in my interpretation because in the in the play I come on at his my ninetieth birthday, and um, I am um, uh, talking to them, and then I start telling them how I first came to London. So I uh, I am there as an Irishman arriving, a twenty year old Irishman arriving in London, and you know, not not only could I not get a word published, I barely got a word understood. And you know, the difficulty in in um, in being understood in a in a foreign country, using a, a language but using it rather differently than the than the natives do, was uh, is part of the part of the fun, part of the um, uh, well, part of uh, it being, uh, in a sense, in a foreign country. Even with the same language, you're in a foreign country. I mean, does does that kind of outsider uh, thing chime in with you? As it well? does, I think. Yes, because I've I've always felt myself to be somewhat at a at a tangent, somewhat outside. Uh, you know, somebody said, "Have you ever? Do you get abroad much?" And I said, "I've lived all my life abroad." You know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes, it it uh, it does, uh, and it, it mostly. I, I'm I feel very lucky to be Irish. I mean, you know, they say the thing about being proud of being Irish. I, I'm neither proud nor ashamed of it. I'm, I'm I feel quite lucky on the basis that it could have been it could have been anything. It's a pure accident accident of birth 
generally, I think it's uh, silly being proud of something that's quite accidental. You should be proud of what you've achieved or something you've particularly done rather than just the accident of birth. But I'm really happy to be Irish. And being Irish in, in, uh, in England, of course, you can be more Irish than you would be, and I certainly am, than I would be in Dublin, because in Dublin I'd be surrounded by Irishmen. <laughs> I remember um, it was, um, oh, who's the guy that did the chat show? His name escaped, you know, the Irishman who came over into chat show. Um, and he said, when he was asked, what was the, what's the main thing he noticed when he came to, to, to London? He said, suddenly, for the first time in my life, I began to dominate dinner parties because in Dublin, in Ireland, everybody is, you know, fighting for airtime. But um, the the English are reserved enough and polite enough to kind of listen. And if there's nothing interesting going on, then you will start um, entertaining yourself, and by that means entertaining them. Um, is that Wogan? That's Wogan. That's the name I was saying. Uh, my memory. Yeah, Terry Wogan. Indeed, he said that. Well, you started when we discussed this um, uh, before. Um, you you mentioned that you you started acting uh, as a direct result of being involved as a uh, as a campaigner. Yes, in in the the anti war movement, um, and particularly a campaign that was running in Brighton to get Omar de Guise released from Guantanamo Bay. He was uh, a Libyan who was um, well, he was uh, British British. Uh, he wasn't actually a, a, a British subject. He had applied for um, citizenship, but it hadn't been processed. And he was um, literally just captured and uh, renditioned to, um, uh, to Guantanamo. And we had um, we, we, we did, as part of our campaign, we did um, a staged, uh, rehearsed reading of Honor Bound to Defend Freedom, which is a salute that American soldiers give each other. They say at, at Guantanamo, Honor Bound, and the response is, to defend freedom, and they apparently do it without any sense of irony as to how, the, quite how they're defending freedom by torturing individuals. But it was a, um, a rehearsed reading of a, a play, which was a collection of correspondence, speeches, um, letters between um, detainees in Guantanamo and their and their um, uh, families, the representatives, um, politicians, and uh, judges. And uh, I got to play um, Donald Rumsfeld, the American Defense Secretary, as well as Jack Straw and a few other notable, uh, notable war criminals. <laughs> but but go, go, going back in that case to um, uh, the Stop the War Coalition and your own personal activism and so forth, I mean, how long have you been politically engaged? I suppose I've always uh, felt myself to be uh, left of centre and a, a socialist by, on, on the grounds of um, Efficiency, really, uh, rational, quite rational grounds rather than emotional grounds to begin with. I, I mean, I wasn't, I can't claim to have a very uh, sort of poor or deprived background. Uh, my father, my father's side were, um, well, upwardly mobile, middle class, uh, working class um, um, railwomen. Railwomen. My grandfather was a train driver. My father was uh, actually had to run away from home, I believe, to, to join the railway because his father was quite unromantic about the idea of driving a steam, steam engine. And uh, he uh, ended up becoming chief inspector of the permanent way. So he had a kind of meteoric rise within that. Uh, my mother was a farmer's daughter from County Clare. Um, and they were artistic in that family, I think. But um, yeah, that, that was my background. I've always 
felt myself to be left of center and uh, just seems to me that inequality is inexcusable and it's also inefficient and actually that chimes very much with Joe's thing I remember at one stage he was asked he was told well, uh, during a debate I said but you know some of the poor are really happy what why are you trying to destroy this and he said my purpose they're not happy because of their poverty anyway my purpose is not to make more happy it's to make the poor better off you know, it's a question of efficiency uh, and um, that that appeals to me about Shaw his um, his his feeling that there, it is such you know poverty is such a waste of human life um, to um, you know he said the uh, the man or woman who is born poor will never get the the chill of poverty out of their bones and will spend their lives sort of scrimping and saving and trying just to make ends meet and uh, uh, and get through life rather than living it. Uh, and he said even those that escape poverty are constantly haunted by the by the possibility of being thrown back into it, purely arbitrary. You know, the whole thing was a, just a waste of a waste of life. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. As befits the son of an Irish railwayman, Paddy O'Keefe spent his early life travelling the country. I asked him about this childhood and how he ended up in England. You mentioned your, your, your parents and your, your dad working on the railway, so um, let's, let's go back to your, your, your childhood in Ireland. You were born in... Kilorglan, County Kerry, on mm-hmm. the west coast of Ireland, um, which is noted for its uh, uh, annual Puck Fair the first uh, weekend of August, where uh, a, a goat gets crowned king, as they say, and everybody else acts the goat for three days. The, 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 the goat is feasted and uh, pampered, and they have the gypsies come in from all the west of Ireland, and uh, there's a, a, horse, a horse fair, uh, and um, lots of singing and dancing. The pubs don't shut for three days. Um, most A lot of the locals sort of Put up the shutters and leave town. I think, and hmm. um, the great time we've had. That's Kilorgan. Uh, from Kilorgan, we went to Bray, Bray in County Wicklow, which is the seaside uh, town where my uh, where my dad worked, and that's where I started school in the presentation college. And after a few years, we moved down to Cork for one year. I believe I was told that it was so that because Dad was going to go for the top job, and in order to get the top job, he had to get the number two job, which was in Cork. My mother didn't like Cork much, although I believe, I mean, I've been back since, they say it's the biggest, it's the biggest village in Ireland, Cork, because <laughs> everybody knows everybody else. Um, so that, and then we moved to Dublin. I was still at primary school when we moved to Dublin, so Dublin is really my hometown in that sense. I, I sat the entrance exam for Sing Street Christian Brothers. Sing Street is the street in which Bernard Shaw was born, of course, and you would, we would have known that at the time. I never went to Sing Street. I went, I went to the... Uh, De La Salle brothers. It was often a choice between the Christian brothers who were quite muscular Christians and believed in corporal punishment from the Jesuits at the other end of the spectrum who uh, sort of messed with your mind, or that was the way it was put. And the De La Salle brothers were somewhere in between believing in a, a liberal education. They were a purely education, and they are a purely educational order of brothers. And uh, so I think I was quite lucky to have uh, had a liberal education we used to write lots of essays on the values of a liberal education and then you went on to study medicine yes i studied medicine yes uh, i don't know i had a 
sort of belief that I had a vocation. I mean, it was assumed, actually, because I was the eldest son, that I would have a vocation for the priesthood, which everybody seemed to have a vocation on my behalf. Yeah, I felt I had a, a I didn't have a vocation for the priesthood, but I, I thought I had a vocation for medicine. I, could, I, I regarded myself as a potential, uh, um, who was the guy, the Belgian uh, guy who was out ministering in the, in the Congo. Uh, oh, um, I will remember that at some point. That's almost a uh, an evangelical approach to to, to to medicine. I think it was that. Yes, Albert Schweitzer is the man's name. Albert Schweitzer. After a couple of years getting getting through my pre med and then getting on to first MB, I realised I wasn't. Uh, I really wasn't cut out for it. It wasn't. Uh, uh, I mean, it it it's a science. It um, it requires. In fact, a, a, an acquaintance of mine has done a. A PhD some years ago on uh, the choice of medicine, looking at the Myers-Briggs personality type, and my particular type, which is the NFP, is apparently the one least likely to succeed in medicine, most likely to drop out of medicine. <laughs> so yes, really? I know. Um, but um, so that was uh, I, I, if I, had I known that at time, it would have uh, it would have helped. I might have chosen to do something else. So was education particularly big with the O'Keefe family? I think learning is, uh, uh, is, well, it's prized in Ireland, just the idea of learning. Um, so uh, that was one of the things somebody once asked me about, why is it that the Irish are noted, you know, why are so many literary people coming from Ireland, you know, from either the Anglo, uh, Anglo-Irish or the native Irish uh, population? And I said, well, A, it's cheap, talk is cheap, and we're very, we're very oral, we like, we like to talk, like to talk a lot. Uh, and also there is a, um, a value is given to learning and storytelling. They are considered to be um, gifts uh, which are uh, admired. And so I think education is taken quite seriously. I mean, they say that Ireland, the current Ireland, you know, with the Celtic tiger and now whatever tiger it is they've got there, is probably one of the highest educated um, um, populations in, uh, in, in Europe. I used to come uh, every the years that I was in at university. I would come and work in the canning factories during the summer mm-hmm. in um, in Lincolnshire and in Norfolk, um, and um, decided on this particular summer that I wasn't going to go back and have to take my reset. That I would stay. Uh, I'd met an English woman, and I'd uh, I was uh, decided that it was time to um, time to. To stay away from home. I mean, it's a, an interesting thing that I never felt that I, 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 uh, I came to England. I rather stayed in England rather than returning to Ireland. But one of the things I'm working on at the moment is a play about um, William Butler Yeats' father, John Butler Yeats, who mm-hmm. was a brilliant um, um, portrait artist. And a, a, a bit of dialogue that occurred to me only yesterday was that I would come on stage and um, talk to the audience as if they were a sitter uh, for my thing. And I would say, Have you, is this the first time you've had your portrait done? And they, they said, well, oh, how wonderful. What a wonderful to have a new experience to do something new, something novel. And I realized that appeals to me greatly. You know, I remember thinking, you know, when is the last time you did something for the first time? It's quite, uh, it's quite challenging to do that and to, um, to give yourself, you know, the chance to, to do things for the first time. 
Do you think, um, sorry, do you think you had that freedom to kind of land on your feet or, 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 or just sorry, go without a plan, but with a, a, a sense of direction? Do you think that was easier because you were in a foreign country? I'm just wondering if there was a, if, if, if you were relieved of the weight of expectation by being an Irishman in England. Relieved of the weight, a weight of expectation. Yes, actually, well, that's true, I suppose, when, when there's no expectation uh, from your family because you're, you're abroad. I mean, Although every time I went home, my mother would say to me, you know, oh, Paddy, why wouldn't you do something like that here? It would be so much appreciated, you know, rather than appreciating what I had actually done. The fact that I was doing it in England um, seemed to some extent to be, um, you know, I was wasting myself by, uh, by doing it in England. Did you never think you know, of returning? Not really. No, no, it never, it was never, uh, uh, no, it didn't actually. And even the idea of uh, retiring to Ireland never occurred to me either. I mean, I've got uh, family and granddaughters in Dublin and I'll go there for Christmas. But even for a, a family Irish Christmas, I feel I'm coming home when I'm coming back to Brighton. I absolutely <laughs> love, love Brighton. When we talk about, say, for example, you're moving from, uh, was it Norfolk through to London and then eventually to Brighton? Mm. And so on. There's a there's a kind of itinerant aspect to you. You're, you're you're shifting around and going kind of where circumstances will take you, and so on. Um, what was your sense of sort of where you were going at, um, over the course of those those years? I suppose the the thing that developed for me was my my career itself. Having got into IT, I then became I was always been a uh, a union member and and um, active in in the union, and I had an opportunity when uh, personnel, as we called it then, it's now called human resources, was being computerized. I was assigned to the personnel department uh, and got involved in um, dealing at a strategic level, not just what the computer could do, but uh, asking questions like, well, why are we doing this anyway? And uh, was very in, much involved in the, in the politics of, um, uh, of, of an organization and the strategy of, a, of an organization at the at uh, the level of human resources, which um, led me to, um, uh, and also with my union activism, led it to be involved as um, a full-time, I got a job as a full-time union rep within the finance uh, uh, business, which, again, a lot of people thought was a, an extraordinary career move to make, but it fitted very well with what I wanted to do. Why extraordinary? One of the things that, well, uh, because it wouldn't be, it certainly is not in a, career progression going on to something like that. I mean, for me, it was because I, uh, I, I wanted to be involved in it. I, uh, I found that in my time that they, uh, you know, I, I found that there were union members, people when people had become active in, in the union and I was, uh, as the full-time union rep, part of my job was, uh, was training them. And I feel that I, what I did was, I did, they didn't need encouragement. They needed confidence building to know that they could do these sorts of things. And you'd get people who were quite young and who uh, would get involved in representing um, uh, union members within their company, um, uh, you know, re representing them in disputes and grievance and disciplinary cases with the company, negotiating on pay and conditions, on uh, equal opportunities, which was a big thing then. We're talking about the early 80s. Um, and um, and then they would go back 
to do their day job, which was something like checking invoices. And you think, you know, these people have got so much more potential than is being asked of them in their job, which got me involved in the idea of developmental training. Um, and as a result of that, I, I went into management development and became the management development manager uh, for the Lombard um, group of uh, uh, companies of Lombard. So as a, as a union activist and, uh, and official, were you considered, for want of a better term, a bolshie? Yes, I think I was. Yes, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, uh, because of my grade, I was entitled to uh, lunch in the executive dining room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we often had arguments over lunch, uh, particularly this was the time when uh, uh, the GLC and Ken Livingston was there and there was trouble in Ireland and... Uh, uh, and also, I represented. You know, I was, I would, I would put things like I would leaflet the executive dining room with the membership, the union membership forms. <laughs> they thought that was absolutely ridiculous. There's scandalous, two, in fact. Brilliant, because there's two things mm-hmm. on that that really, really spring to mind, particularly with regards to, yeah. to to this podcast and this interview. And the first, I suppose, really is is that at that time, the late seventies and the early eighties, the IRA campaign in, in in Britain was pretty much at its height. Yeah, and so here yeah. we have a a, a Bolshe Irishman handing out handing out leaflets and so on. I mean, were you treated with suspicion? I don't think so. I mean, there were a number of people who had a bee in their bonnet about it, who would kind of argue with me and and want to hold me directly responsible for every um, initiative that came out of the GLC or every atrocity that the IRA committed in uh, in the north. But uh, there, there were a few. A few people like that. But, how, how did you deal uh, with that? I, well, I I would uh, I would argue, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily. I mean, I wasn't. Uh, uh, you know, I, w- I wouldn't uh, necessarily defend uh, or what had uh, what had happened. Although generally, I would I would defend it. I would defend Ken Livingston, uh, whom I admired greatly and still admire. Um, um, but um, yes, it was. I suppose it was part of the persona of being. Uh, a bit of a bit of a rebel, um, yeah, and uh, and I quite uh, I quite I I quite enjoyed it. I mean, I'm just thinking of it now, uh, it certainly didn't seem onerous. It just went with the territory, you know. If you're if you're on the left and you're Irish and on the left, and you believe in things like uh, a United Ireland, um, then you're likely to get um, uh, likely to get into into arguments and discussions. Not always friendly. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. You can find us on www.plasticpodcasts.com. This is the section of the podcast that I call the Plastic Pedestal, where I ask one of my guests to talk about a member of the diaspora who's been of either cultural or personal significance to them. Paddy O'Keefe's contribution will come in another podcast. But in the meantime, here's John O'Donoghue talking about Brian Behan. So the Behans were a famous Irish family. Uh, Brian Behan, uh, playwright, sorry, Brendan Behan, playwright and uh, memoirist, Borsal Boy's memoir. Um, tragically, he died early of diabetes, I think you'd say, but also alcoholism. Um his brother Dominic was a famous musician and songwriter, wrote uh, 
great songs like the Patriot Game. Uh, and Brian then was, uh, as he told me, uh, I was famous before any of them, John. Um, I was involved in the shell strike of, of uh, 1951, I think it was. He said uh, he was down there on the South Bank and uh, he said he organized the Go Slow uh, for the builders down there building the the buildings for the Festival of Britain, I think it was. And he said, and John, it really was a Go Slow. Uh, we had uh, fellows there uh, walking with the wheelbarrow, uh, heel and toe, John, heel and toe, uh, as slow as they could possibly move uh, while still being in locomotion. So Brian was just uh, an amazing force of nature. I remember saying to him once, oh, Brian, I'm really fed up, mate. Uh, uh, this job I've got, you know, and everything like that. He says, I don't know what's the matter with you, John. He says, you've got a, a fine family here. You have a wonderful wife, four great children, a lovely house. What is wrong with you? So I, I thought to myself then, God, Brian's really like Zorba the Paddy. He's kind of like this... <laughs> <laughs> it, he's, he's this he, he, it doesn't do to be moaning around Brian, uh, around Brian because he, 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 was a, he was a... Well, you knew him, Doug, yeah. so he's a marvellous... Marvellous, and he put me. We 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 had this festival going on, and Brian had this uh, this play in the festival. Uh, and at the start of the play, it opens with Mr. Portillo, uh, Mr. Portillo, I think he disguised Mr. Portillo, in flagrante delicto with the PM over his desk in the very first moments of the play. So a friend of Brian's, who was a journalist, phoned up the Conservative Central Office, uh, posing as a loyal member of the local Conservatives Association, uh, to denounce this dastardly fellow Bean. So the chap on the other end of the line, who has been recorded, uh, said, well, who is this chap? We'll, we'll cut off his grant. Brian wasn't getting a grant. Uh, we'll do this to him. We'll, do, we'll, we'll, we'll destroy the fellow. So, of course, Brian was able to make great capital out of this and had two columns in The Independent uh, in the Brighton Festival for 1995. Uh, got great houses at his um, play and was, was a hero of the festival that year. And he, of course, he turned out for us in the in the flower. I think it's a great idea, he said. Uh, he didn't ask me, uh, was he going to get paid? He was paid. He didn't ask me, uh, was it going to be a contract? There was no contract. Um, he just really took to it, and uh, he came and he came and performed, shall we say, at the bugle. I said, oh, Mr. Bean, will you be uh, will you be reading from your books, Mr. Bean? No, I, I shall be speaking extempore, John. He said. And I really uh, got the horrors when he said that, though, because I just didn't know what the heck he was going to say. But luckily, in the bugle, um, he started off uh, fulminating against the Irish football team. Sadly, of course, uh, Jack Charlton's just died. Mm -hmm. But uh, Brian's line on that was, uh, oh, I think Jack Charlton's a marvellous fella. If only he'd let some of our boys play. So <laughs> he was he was slightly against the diasporic character of the team then. Uh, of course, what I did was, rather cleverly, because the bugle was absolutely rammed. Honestly, it was rammed when Bean was there. Um, so I choked him off after 10 minutes and said, uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Bean. Uh, Mr. Bean will be uh, uh, talking to you again, ladies and gentlemen, after a short interval. So, of course, everyone looked daggers at me, but they all had to go up to the bar and get another drink. So we did rather well for the bugle that day, I think, uh, myself and Brian. What about Beanism? Uh, well, you see, I'd like to characterise... Brian's kind of Bianism from the other brothers' Bianism. I think uh, Brian is an exponent of Brianism. Uh, and Brianism differs slightly. Well, um, it was John Cole, the BBC's political correspondent, who said that they uh, owed more to Groucho than to Karl Marx in their politics. And I think Brian um, was 
the real uh, chief exponent of this, because I think Brendan was pretty serious about his republicanism, and Dominic was a pretty serious uh, Irish republican as well. But Brian got more into um, left-wing revolutionary politics in this country, and he suddenly, I think, developed the notion that actually it was quite farcical. And it basically come down to his association with uh, an Irishman, Jerry Healy, I think his name was, and the Workers' Revolutionary Party. And Jerry Healy had uh, supporters in the Redgrave family. And uh, Brian used to have me in stitches about his tales of Jerry Healy and the, shall we say, the uh, interactions he had with the Redgraves. Uh, complete juxtaposition, this very august English theatrical dynasty and this short, butty Dubliner, uh, who was very unprepossessing, according to Brian. Uh, I think he was actually jealous of Jerry Healy. But we'll probably go no further there, Doug, because <laughs> I might be laying you open to libel. So we'll have to draw a bit of a veil over that. But I think you'll re- your listeners will probably be able to to fathom uh, some of what I'm hinting at there. And with regards to Brian, how do you think he influenced you? Well, he was... He was fearless, Doug, as you'll know. Uh, he was a man for great schemes. Um, Brighton had this uh, campaign going on, uh, trying to attract tourists, I suppose, that Brighton was the place to be. Mm. Uh, Brian, of course, made that uh, slogan his own. Uh, he, he, he wanted Brighton to be the place to pee because he said, he said there weren't enough public toilets down here uh, and the ones they were were in a complete state. And he was right. And that was a great campaign and I, I, I loved that. He also, of course, was ahead of his time. He got into grey power, pensioner power. But perhaps his biggest coup was um, uh, his SID campaign. Uh, you remember that, Doug. Uh, SID stood for shut it down. He wanted to replace the House of Parliament with, as he said, uh, Swiss referenda, um, votes for everything, uh, to be decided by a reasonably honest computer. Uh, and I love the qualification of reasonably honest there. So I think... Uh, First and foremost, it was the fearlessness of Brian I took to. Um, and secondly, it was the the mischief. Uh, everything he did politically had this weft of mischief in it. He was, he was serious about his politics, but what made him so engaging and so attractive politically and, and on every other level was the humour. John O'Donoghue there. And if you want to hear more of what John has to say, why not check out our interview with him on www.plasticpodcasts.com. Now back to our interview with Paddy O'Keefe. And I asked Paddy if he found any advantages to being an outsider. I, I, think, I think it helped. I, never, uh, I also thought that uh, Joel felt it helped, you know, because being Irish, you, you know, one of the things that is peculiar and that he found peculiar is the English class system, uh, and being Irish, it's difficult. You're you're difficult for the English to place you anywhere in the in a social structure. So you know you can't. It's uh, it, that it's quite freeing in that uh, in that sense. And also, uh, you can comment quite objectively. You know, it's interesting. This oh, this is the way you do things here. You know, rather than. This is the way we do things here, <laughs> <laughs> and that can be uh, can lead to quite interesting arguments. But you can um, turn the spotlight yeah, I, on things. Hmm? You can turn the Sorry? spotlight on things. Yes, yes, absolutely. And 
uh, I mean, I suppose the, the thing is that being the outsider, I certainly found it in that when I worked with organizations that the person coming into an organization will be the one who is most conscious of the culture of the organization. People who are within the organization, it's like the water they swim in. They, they don't see it anymore. It's just there. Um, and that's why, you know, that's a, a, an opportunity for uh, 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 organizations to benefit from new people coming in and asking the blindingly obvious question like, why do we do that? <laughs> Which wouldn't occur to the people who are doing it. Um, and that was one of the things that I enjoyed about um, you know, training consultancy and stuff when I became a freelance you know, with, with organizations, uh, asking the, the naive question. Uh, which you can do as an outsider. The insiders can't do it or won't do it because, oh, I'm going to look stupid if I ask a question like that because I should know um, and make assumptions, whereas the outsider can uh, can ask the questions. And it doesn't matter if it seems naive. In fact, often the naive question is the question that really needs to be asked and answered by the by the people within the organisation. I suppose that takes us through to your own political activism and uh, campaigns like the uh, Free Omar de Haiz uh, campaign. Is, is, is that for you a progression from uh, union work and, uh, and, and that, kind of, uh, that kind of training work that you did? I don't know whether it's a progression. And I certainly I see it all, all as a one. I mean, when you, when you find, when you see injustice or unfairness, you know, you, there would be a natural inclination to want to do something about it. But you point it out try to, to correct it. I mean, that, I would do that in the, the role as a, as a union rep, you know, uh, helping people stand up for their rights, etc. And, um, you know, I mean, it's why I'm involved in, say, the, um, the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign, because, you know, where there is oppression, uh, if you remain silent, then you are aiding the oppressor. You know, you have to, you have to stand up and... Uh, Say what you uh, say what you think about about uh, uh, about about unfairness and oppression, and there's plenty of it about. Was this a gradual move in, from from uh, union politics into um, more causes than anything, or, or did this run alongside? I think it ran alongside. Yes, I mean the the thing that I found in my three and a half years or so as a full time union rep, uh, and I, I went on to to be elected to the national executive committee of the union. So I had a couple more years of, of that. But I felt that I was doing in my day job what I wanted to do at weekends, which was campaigning, um, uh, raising issues, uh, you know, involved in, in local campaigns and national campaigns with CND and, uh, uh, and local, uh, uh, we had a local thing in Carshalton about saving the lodge land because the, the council wanted to, uh, uh, to put, uh, posh houses on a, uh, a part of piece of land of outstanding natural beauty which we want to preserve so yeah i um, i think there was a it, it's just a, a a way of uh, a way of being i don't see it particularly as a progression it's something that's been there has been there all the time you know you get a lot of irish who are involved in trade union politics and in uh, left-wing politics uh, generally and i think they're um, as a as a community, they're disproportionately represented within within these um, um, left wing left wing groups. 
Is that also part of the evangelical thing then, to a certain extent? I mean, I, I use evangelical probably wrongly, but uh, it, it seems appropriate, which is that you're almost trying to change the country that you've moved to for the better. Are you a political missionary, Paddy? Yeah, well, no. It, it, when, I was, when, we, when you interviewed me earlier, I was talking about you know, having uh, five aunts and uncles who were all missionaries. Yes. You know, I mean, uh, four, four nuns and one priest, and all in what they regarded as the foreign mission. Although um, my, uh, my uncle, Father Peter, was a um, parish priest in Hobart in Tasmania, which is not exactly third world, but it was a, a sort of a family joke that when he, was, when he was ordained, he put down Tasmania wrongly believing that it was in Africa. Now, I don't know whether <laughs> that is true or not. It sounds as if it should be in Africa, really. Uh, but the, the others, I mean, I had two, two aunts who were missionaries in, um, in Nigeria, um, uh, one in uh, Ibadan, one near Lagos, I think, and uh, another who was uh, a missionary in Kenya, and then one who was in Blackburn in Lancashire. And it was always, ah. I mean, we thought it, we thought it, you know, that is the real foreign mission to be Blackburn in Lancashire, because the others are dealing with uh, with Africans who are mostly pagan, we say, uh, whereas, the, you know, in Blackburn, you're coming across English Protestants. I mean, how, how, how foreign could that be? <laughs> that was definitely the foreign mission. <laughs> also, I think there is a, a kind of an element to the Irish diaspora in terms of what used to be the, the religion. I think it's now um, um, uh, aid and... Um, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières and, and organisations like that. It just seems to me that they seem, the Irish seem to be um, disproportionately represented in those sorts of organisations as well. You know, you often hear people talking about uh, what's going on in, uh, in, uh, oh, in Qatar, wherever, you know, in the, the Middle East or, or Africa. And it's an Irish voice that's there, you know, representing the people who are mm. uh, doing, um, doing good humanitarian work out there. Um, so I think that's uh, I think that's true. I think that's perhaps it's perhaps, perhaps, it, perhaps it's no surprise that it's uh, it was an Irishman based in London who who kicked off and was the driving force behind Band Aid and Live Aid. That's true, absolutely. Yeah, give us your blub blub money. <laughs> yeah, good Bob Geldof. Yes, indeed. Uh, I haven't had blum blum money in years. <laughs> I tell you, it's it's, it's, it's the decline of blum blum cash that gets me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's so, I mean, I was, I was going to ask, so what is it that makes you, or, I mean, it's angry may not be the right term to use, but I suppose it's, well, what, is, what, is, what is it that like, stimulates you to go, sort of like, that needs protesting, dealing with, and so on? Uh, well, I think the, the sense of unfairness, I mean, you know, the, the, what, what is happening on a daily basis to the Palestinian people in their own homeland? I mean, there's a connection between that and the Irish experience. You know, the Irish have a, a sort of a, a I mean, I, OK, it, it's going back centuries now, but it, uh, the, 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 the cultural experience of being refugees in their own land, of being on, hunted and, and, uh, and, and killed and brutalized in their own land. You know, Roger Casement felt that when he exposed the cities uh, in Belgian Congo and in South America. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, while it's not, maybe not the same, I mean, it's quite, it was quite harsh in, uh, uh, in Ireland as well, this idea that, uh, um, so that displacement, that um, being colonised, or uh, uh, the attempt being to colonise. I mean, I know when I'm, when I'm leafleting, I've been leafleting it for, you know, on um, uh, anti-apartheid or uh, stuff like... Um, um, uh, anti-Zionist or 
for you know promoting Palestinian freedom and stuff. You have a conversation with a Palestinian, and when they find out you're Irish, you know you get hugged. <laughs> I mean, there is that connection. They 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 know it, and we know it. Um, and it's no accident that Ireland, the, the, the government of Ireland, although I don't think they do enough, uh, have been one of, at the forefront of, um, uh, of of promoting Palestinian Palestinian rights. Uh, you know, um, you can't uh, you can't sort of sit still while uh, well, if you believe in human rights at all, then they are universal, and everybody has a right to it. Mm. I know one of the things I did or used to do was. Um, we had um, uh, a wonderful woman whose name escapes me now who had this idea of reciting uh, all the um, the United Nations Charter of Human Rights, uh, each of the uh, elements in it. And I got number three or five, I think. I can't remember which one it was. And I could recite it now in Irish. I might not get it right. But it... Oh, go on, go for it. <laughs> uh, well, it says, Ta e got illidina on calf and snodana on Martha, August on Shearsha, on Fersen. The Irish translation, it just doesn't say everybody. It says every single person, you know, which is stressed, no exceptions. Every single person has the right to personal security, to, to freedom, freedom of expression, those sorts of uh, things. And uh, I think that it's also quite interesting that Irish is I think possibly the only language that has a separate method of counting for things as opposed to people. That when you count things, you say endo three karkui, one, two, three, four, five. When you count people, you say dinner per thror. It's a separate system of counting. So there is something in the in the Irish psyche that, that values the individual and individuality greatly. Um, and um, I think that comes through in, uh, you know, comes comes through in what we uh, what we do and what our priorities are. So I'm particularly uh, into Yeats at the moment. I'm learning some of his uh, poems by heart. There are some that I already know, know already, but I've, I'm learning some of them by heart. The ones that deal particularly with old age and with um, um, mm-hmm. uh, and with oh anger, I suppose, passion, passion, and old age. Um, and uh, I'm also uh, researching uh, his father, John Butler Yates, whom I mentioned earlier. I'm having uh, oh, yes. a, a one-man play about about him because he's an absolutely fascinating character. Neil Tobin wrote a wonderful book that was published a year or two ago called Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know, where he did, um, um, a, uh, he did a, an exposition of three famous Irishmen, the fathers of three famous Irishmen, uh, James Joyce's father, uh, Oscar Wilde's father, and William Butler Yeats's father. And each of the fathers were quite exceptional. Uh, I mean, I, I gave them as Christmas presents to some of the, well, all the male friends in my, all the male members of my family, particularly those who are fathers, <laughs> uh, and some other male friends, because I think it's an absolutely fascinating um, study uh, and what has uh, taken me, uh, what has particularly captivated me is uh, John Butler Yeats. The fact that he um, uh, was a, a man who gave up a, a, a promising career in law uh, to become an artist because he found himself in the court and what he
what he was doing rather than paying attention to what was going on, was doing sketches of the judge and the jury and the, and the witnesses and the, <laughs> the, 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 the lawyers and um, decided to take up art as his uh, life, much to the chagrin of his wife and often occasionally to his children. And he never, he never really made, um, made much money at it because he wasn't particularly good at the business side of art. But he is regarded now as the, probably the, the best portrait painter that Ireland has ever produced. Uh, what, what happened was in, when he was in his 70s, uh, early 70s, uh, he was in Dublin, not doing very well, but having a gallery in, in uh, Stevens Green. And, you know, um, it, it was a sort of genteel poverty. He wasn't making money, but uh, his friends clubbed round to decide, you know, he'd never been to Italy. And so as an artist, you really have to spend some time in Italy. So they, they got him, gave him a, a load of money and said, you know, go and have a holiday in Italy and... Uh, you know, see all the uh, other great works of art, and it'll be be wonderful for your art. And he took the money and then decided that what he would do was go to New York. So he got a one-way ticket to New York and actually never came back. And that's the part that I want to deal with in the, the play: how he managed to, uh, uh, in in my Colm Tobin's rendition of that, he calls him the uh, the playboy of West Fifty Seventh Street or whatever it is. <laughs> He settled in New York and, and had a wonderful time. Again, not making much money, but um, becoming a, a, a real um, a center for uh, artistic and political, well, artistic more than political uh, discussion. Right. Well, that's, it's hardly surprising that resonates with you. I mean, you're also a, a, a man who's decided to stay in a country. Yeah. And, and, and also there's that dichotomy between your having started off as a scientist, as a, as, as a, as a would-be doctor. Yeah. Um, and finally moving into to, to the arts. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's, that's very true. There is a lot that, uh, uh, that rings bells for me, which must be one of the reasons that it, I found the thing, the idea of doing a play about him uh, so attractive. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. I asked Paddy O'Keefe about his beloved George Bernard Shaw and other Irishmen abroad. What, what happens is uh, I come on as, as myself and say something uh, about Shaw and why he's important, etc. Or say something about why I've become fascinated with him and how I would really dearly love to get him in the psychiatrist's chair to ask him some questions about his childhood because he had the most bizarre childhood. And he said things like, you know, if you've got skeletons in the cupboard, you could either not acknowledge them or teach them to dance. You thought, well, that's, is he, is he denying this? Or is, what, is he, what is he doing? You know, he, he, he managed somehow, it seemed to me, to um, not to be a particularly reliable narrator to his own childhood. One of the things that he said, and I said, he says it when he comes on as Joe, he said, never mind about all this analysis. He said, the purpose of life is not to discover yourself. The purpose of life is to create yourself. So you become the person you need to be in order to do what you came here to do. And he believed that. And he did create himself in this way to, uh, to, to achieve what he wanted to achieve. Do you believe that of you? Yes, I think I do. I do. Because in my study in a previous life, I studied psychology and I was very taken by, um, by George Kelly's uh, Theory is an American psychologist who published in the 60s, I think died in the 60s, um, and talked about, he said, personality 
that fundamentally we approach personality as a scientist. We, sorry, we approach life uh, much as a scientist would. We see what works and we accept that. We see what doesn't work. We, we're creating hypotheses. We test them out. If they work, we will accept them. If they don't, we will either scrap them or modify them until we see that they work. So we effectively build our own personality. That was his view. And I believe that, in a sense, we are responsible for what we have become. Um, and it's, it's quite a challenging thought. It doesn't match particularly with either Freud or, uh, or Jung, but it, um, uh, it, 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 it appeals to me. And it, it was certainly true of Shaw. And it was also true of Oscar Wilde that he created himself. You know, as he said, uh, I, uh, what was it about his, uh, his, his, uh, his, I put my talent, um, oh, oh, I can't remember the, the phrase that he said, but basically it was um, uh, said that he put his genius uh, into his life. Uh, talent was into his work, his genius into his life. So he did create himself in that sense. And I think, I think it is true. Because it seems to me that like a, a part, part of a, a constant pattern in the, in the work that you've done has been um, you've kind of embraced the dichotomy that you kind of work, live in, live, live in mm. that gray area in between, in between two, the, the, the artistic and the scientific, uh, the, the, the English and the Irish and things like that. Would, would that be fair to say? Yes, I think, I think that, is, that is true. Um, it is certainly true. And quite interesting, the, the, um, the, the idea of the quintessential Irishman, I'm just remembering the question that you asked me, which I didn't do my homework on, it occurred to me that a, a quintessential theatrical Irishman would be Michal MacLeamor, mm-hmm. who was not Irish at all. He created this persona for himself. Um, and I don't know if you know the story about Michal MacLeamor, but he's a fascinating character. And he, um, uh, one, of, one of his things was a, a very famous um, one-man play or show uh, about Oscar Wilde called The Importance of Being Oscar, mm. which he took all over the world. Um, but he uh, also, he became a native Irish speaker. He adopted the, um, the, the whole cultural thing, so much so that in his four volumes of autobiography, he wrote them all in Irish and then translated them into English. <laughs> and this, this, you know, but so he became an embodiment of, of Irishness of a particular type. And there is also something about the about the outsider um, typifying the the, um, the the culture that they uh, that they either originate from or have adopted. Uh, you know, I mean, it's always true of what Napoleon. You know, the the old schoolboy joke was, uh, um, "Can can Napoleon speak French?" And the answer is Corsican. Yeah, you know, he was a Cor- he was Corsican. He was an outsider. De Valera was an outsider. His mother. Was Irish, but his father was a, a sugar planter of Spanish origin. You know, the the outsider often uh, can embody um, um, the, the fundamentals of the uh, of, of the other um, of, of the nation, represent the nation in that way. I suppose um, it's we're coming to the end now, and I, I just want to ask one last question. Given all that in mind, and given all that we've talked about and things like that, and it's been an absolute joy, what would you say that being a member of the Irish diaspora has meant for you or changed you? Uh, gosh, it's, it's very difficult to uh, look at uh, one thing. I mean, I, I think I've said earlier that I, I feel quite lucky, very lucky to have been Irish. Um, and... Uh, um, you know the 
one has pride not so much in what uh, in what one is because it's an accident of birth rather than what one has done um, but i i think i suppose by embodying some of the the qualities of irishness it it is freeing uh, it is assumed you know i when i was a in developmental training, I used to say to people, you know, you want to be something, behave as if. You want to be particularly well organized, behave as if you are. Now, behaving as if you're good with words, have a capacity for words. Whether you have or not, you will develop a capacity for words if you're behaving as if you are. You will use it, you will practice it. Um, so um, there is that uh, element that uh, being uh, being free to, to look at the uh, the kind of the characteristics, the admirable characteristics that are associated with the Irish, helps you to to use them to 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 be free with words, to be creative with words. To uh, um, you know, I love quotations. I love that something. Sort of I love the language. I love uh, uh, I love talking it. I love listening to it. Um, um, and that I think that is is freeing, um, freeing in a sense. You know. Behave as if, and when you behave as if, you become. You've been listening to the Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Paddy O'Keefe. Plastic Pedestal came courtesy of John O'Donoghue, and music was by Jack Devaney. Find out more about us on www.plasticpodcasts.com. The Plastic Podcasts has been supported using public funding by Arts Council England.